listening to Catnap Dialogues, a show that features narratives from everyday people and their journey towards learning a language. I'm your host, Milo Falcone. Welcome back to Catnap Dialogues. Thank you so much for your support. Remember, our show aims for diversity and inclusion, which is why today I have Elin, an intersex activist. Yeah, my name is Elin Rubashkin, and uh, I am from Colombia, and I've been living in Aotearoa, New Zealand um, for a couple of years already. Okay, and what are your preferred pronouns? They, them. Now, my guest has a very diverse background, which is why I think it's important to ask, where do they consider themselves from? Well, I mean, because I have such a complex history because my mom, my mom is from from Ukraine, but she left the, the Ukraine in the 60s uh, and she went to Colombia for reasons. I mean, that's kind of like a really a typical place for someone <laughs> to choose to go to. But I always say that I'm from, you know, from Colombia, but it's kind of complicated because no one knows where Colombia is, especially in this part of the world. They immediately assume that I am from Colombia in the United States or British Columbia in Canada. So yeah, that's kind of like the first challenge that I face. And then I say, no, 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 I am from Colombia that is a country in South America. So I kind of like always say kind of like South America and then I kind of like narrow it down to Colombia. Next, of course, I wanted to know what they did for a living. Well, I mean, I work in science, but um, I, I am a, I'm a, I'm a pharmacist by training, but I am kind of like working now on on, um, on a lab and I do multiple things related to chemistry and all of that. So that's kind of like one side of me, but now I'm becoming more involved in human rights and I work for human rights of intersex persons, um, especially at the UN level. And I find that very fascinating because uh, I'm actually more, more than anything I'm learning. Uh, how to do that because that's not necessarily something that uh, that uh, everyone can say that you, you you know how to do but I think that it's just because of my personal experience and a little bit of the work that I've been doing in the in the last 10 years that so, somehow kind of kind, kind of helps me to to do this type of work I asked how many years had they been in New Zealand and what their native language is Oh, I've been, uh, I came here in 2014, so that's nearly seven years going to eight. So that's a complex question. Yeah, I obviously was born in Colombia, but my mom is Russian, but not Russian. That was the Russian language that I kind of used with my mom, but she's from Ukraine. Um, but she actually was born in a place that Bef like just a few years before she was born, um, was from Poland. So that city where she was born used Polish mainly as a language. Then during those four years of transition, the, that place was uh, a place that used Ukrainian as a language. 
But then when my mom was born, that place was enforcing the use of Russian. It passed like the from three languages in just a couple of years. So that that's kind of like where it comes from. And to further complicate things, uh, at home, uh, my mom used a language called Yiddish, which was not necessarily a language that uh, was supported at the time the Soviet Union. So those four kind of languages somehow were languages that were part of my mom's history. But Russian at the end of the day was the language in which she, she went to school and it was the language that was kind of like obligated to learn. So it became the actual language that she used in her day-to-day -day life, even though she can speak a little bit of other these, these other languages that I just mentioned you. And, and why I say that, because I grew up with my mom and she spoke to me in Russian, but sometimes she spoke these other languages in parts of her life, you know? I, did, I didn't grow up with my father, uh, so it was just my mom. So I, it was very intimate, that relationship that I have with my mom, because as I was growing up in Colombia, a country that is very homogeneous and doesn't have migrants, many migrants, especially the place where I was living, because I was living in a low middle class area of my city, so even less likely that you will find any migrants. So yeah, I find that a little bit for me was quite strange because I was the only person I knew or maybe there were others, but like me that kind of like uh, that knew Russian, <laughs> you know, so I, when I went to school, like I was the only one that knew another language because no one at school knew even how to speak English or any other language. So that was already kind of like, it made me a different person, very different. But yeah, it was very intimate, that relationship with my mom. But my mom also, in a way, tried to, to speak also with me quite a lot in Spanish. Okay, to a point that even though uh, Russian was a language that was kind of like lingua franca at home, <laughs> Spanish was also spoken quite a lot. And today I speak better Spanish than I do Russian, okay? Although I understand Russian very well, um, I speak way better Spanish. Uh, and it's just maybe because my mom, I don't know if she was lazy or I don't know if she was actually not really interested in me learning a language that she was thinking that it's not going to be useful for me. It was just inherently inherent in my mom just to speak Spanish and just to kind of not overcomplicate things for, for a child, you know. I think that was kind of like my mom. When, my mom was already coping with other things in relation to me. I was born intersex, so that, that's way, way too much for my mom to overcomplicate things, you know. <laughs> now, I wanted to ask them if they thought they had an accent. I, oh, yes, I do, and that makes... It's something that, if I'm very honest with you, is it, it affects me emotionally because I feel I've like been discriminated against for my accent. And, you know, it sounds very strange, but here in Aotearoa, New Zealand, I feel constantly people kind of questioning me how much of a Kiwi I am because of my accent. And and sometimes the people making immediate assumptions that I'm a tourist or I'm I'm not part of this place despite of you, you know, I mean, I actually don't have Colombian citizenship because before becoming a New Zealand citizen, I was a stateless. So I am very sensitive when somebody tries to make me feel that I'm not of this land because I have no other land to call home. And when somebody questions my origin just because of my very 
rich and thick accent, I actually get emotional, okay? And it happens constantly because it's, uh, uh, I mean, right now I'm working in a job that I don't interact much with people, but before when I was working in a pharmacy daily, on a daily basis, I was questioned, oh, where are you from? And you know, that kind of question, I mean, it's okay to answer that question, but when you have to answer that question every day, 10 times for, okay, for years, that's actually very, you know, annoying. That's very annoying. And because it's kind of like the constant reminder that you are not part of this land, okay? They assume things based on your accent. They assume that you are maybe less intelligent. So they start speaking more slowly to you, kind of assuming that you are not understanding anything they're saying. So it's kind of like, in a way, it's multiple things. So people become more condescending or people are, they change their type, like their, their behavior to you. You know, it's like they can completely change it just once they realize your accent. And that uh, for me, it's more obvious because I am a white looking person, okay? Even though I have Colombian blood, I look white. So people immediately assume I'm from New Zealand. And when I start speaking and my accent becomes obvious, they change. You know, and when people start treating you differently just because of your accent, that's something that obviously impacts and affects you. Yeah. New Zealand has one of the highest immigration rates in the whole world. Together with Australia, a third of New Zealand people were, were born outside New Zealand. What, have, what you just said is the, the makeup of that migration is what is different. So most of migration to New Zealand are from India and from China or the Southeast Asia. Okay, I would say most of migrants. So if you speak like someone that comes from China or Korea, or if you speak to someone from India, nobody's even gonna question where you're from because they already know they're used to you. But when somebody comes with my accent, they don't know my accent, okay? Because the, the migration coming from Latin America is incredibly small in New Zealand. It's very, very small. So they never had a chance to hear this accent. I think New Zealand is praised internationally for that particular way of uh, respecting that uh, interaction that they have with the native population. That's historic as well. But I think New Zealand, uh, from those countries that colonize, you know, people, other, other peoples, I think they have probably one of the best relationships in the world, to say, yeah. Now, I also wanted to ask Aileen, when and where did they first learn English? I, the educational system in Colombia really, really, really sucks, especially if you are low middle class. So I really didn't get to learn good English as I was you know, growing up in Colombia. Then I entered, entered the university and university, I kind of like started learning a more academic English. And then my university was a little bit like, uh, actually it was the National University of Colombia, which is potentially the best university of the country. So there's, yeah, better systems, even though it's a public university and is well under-resourced, still one of the best universities in Colombia. So I, ha I had finally kind of like a little bit of chance to, to, to learn uh, um, English, I was super uncomfortable when I wanted to communicate with people. And even though I could read it and I could, you know, like, you know, I was, of course, I was struggling with the listening. So I couldn't watch a Netflix series and understand what the hell is going on. <laughs> but 
Uh, it was when when I migrated to Taiwan and then later on in Hong Kong that I actually mastered for once and all the English because uh, even though Taiwan is not a country where, <laughs> but because I was studying uh, public health in a university that was, you know, every all the education was in English and also in Chinese. It was a very hardcore for me idea to know that I needed to speak these two languages if I wanted to graduate. So I actually have a, had a very deep um, learning experience uh, with English and both Chinese because it was kind of like half of my time for like a couple of, of years that I was kind of learning these two. And I think that that's when I actually mastered for once and all the language. Now, I also wanted to ask them how many languages do they think they speak? That's a very interesting question because I speak Russian. The experience that I had while living in China, in a way, kind of like forced me to learn languages for multiple reasons. I was living in a refugee camp for quite some time. That's a really long story I don't want to (laughs) elaborate on. But that experience kind of made me... uh, placed me in a situation in which learning languages was one of the good ways for me to cope with that situation. So I kind of mastered many languages. So I speak perfect Portuguese, um, even though I kind of like knew a little bit before coming to this part of the world. Uh, I speak English, I speak obviously Spanish. Uh, I speak Hebrew because my partner is from Israel and it's a language that, yeah, that I've been learning. And um, yeah, I mean, those are languages that I think I, I speak. And I can understand Ukrainian uh, for reasons. I speak a little bit of Yiddish for also the same reasons that I I said, uh, you know, that I was talking to you about. Yeah, I think that's it. I don't know how many I mentioned, but yeah, I think six, six or seven languages, depending on how you count the knowledge to a language. I also wanted to ask my guests if they would like to share anything about their current residency, their native country, and anything about their personal work. Well, I, I, I will say something about New Zealand. So after New Zealand, I always call it Teoreoa because I feel deep respect for the work that the people of this country is doing to uh, bring visibility to the indigenous issues of the First Nations people. And then how much I would like that to be done also in Colombia, because I think just colonization has been a little bit more aggressive in our parts of the world and it's been for more time. So it's a shame that I I don't know how to say hello in any of the native languages of my country. That just makes me feel very shameful. Uh, And yeah, I would would say that my my work is very important for me because uh, with my activism, I'm advocating for my community, the intersex community. Yeah, so the my my community has apart from so you know intersex people are those that are born with bodies that are different from the notions of normality that medicine of culture has defined on male or female bodies. Okay, so it's all of us who are born outside of that you know, scope of normality or in a way, because we have a different way of a different body 
and it's multiple variations. We're speaking about 45 variations and up to 300 sub-variations within the variations. And yeah, I mean, it's not about having both because a lot of people say, oh, you know, intersex people are those who are born with both. No, that's that's not that's not the case. So it's multiple ways, multiple ar arrangements, and sometimes it's visible, sometimes it's invisible. Sometimes you don't even know you are intersex. Sometimes you know you are intersex. Uh, and often there, what what unite us is the shared experiences that uh, we have. And I think. I think that being intersex beyond your body is actually the experiences that we all share in, in terms of discrimination that we face. For having, you know, maybe these bodies, but I mean, our bodies have nothing wrong. It's just the, the perception society has on those bodies and how we often experience mutilation, surgeries, horrendous treatments throughout a childhood. And, you know, and I, I think those experiences of trauma also unite us in a way because we grow up broken. And that feeling kind of like makes us feel that uh, that the, the, there is an injustice and then we decide to actually make our issues visible despite society wanted us to be invisible and by ourselves us, we want to be also invisible because we feel that shame and stigma uh, so we we make ourselves invisible, society makes us invisible, and even doctors trying to erase our identities with surgeries. So it is it, it is in a way kind of that frustration of like, no, I don't want to be invisible. I'm proud of who I am. And I want to fight for my brothers, sisters and siblings. I don't want them to experience all the things I, I passed through life. And that's when you become very active and you start to change the notions and perceptions of society of our diversity, which is a natural bodily variation that exists everywhere in every single animal can be intersex. So we are also intersex and we are just a manifestation of that beautiful diversity that we shouldn't be afraid <clears throat> and feel shame about. Yeah, so that's what I do. I mean, I, I'm, for me, it's just more about the protection of our rights to bodily integrity, bodily autonomy, which is fundamental because we are, we, we are not given the right to choose. We know when we're babies, uh, or we, we are not able to consent. We experience a horrendous array of mutilations and surgeries that are done with our consent. And that's just torture, that's medical torture. And that's a common experience. Lots of us have that common experience. And we want that to stop. We want that to bloody stop. It's simple. But it doesn't seem to be that simple because uh, we all been with this growing frustration that that it, for us is something so obvious, you know, stop, stop doing this. But this keep hap it keeps happening. No country in the world protects us from those surgeries. Only three: Malta, Portugal, and Germany. And we are being not. And we can. We are not protected for discrimination for being intersex because we don't exist. We are second-class citizens. So there is lots of frustration and those frustrations are the pretty much that energy that drives the work I do. And I think the work of many intersex activists. As usual, I asked my guests if they had ever felt or were made to feel different because of the way they spoke English. However, I wanted to give it a little twist because Alien is in the advocacy world. I wanted to particularly touch on how that affects their work, especially because they have to deal with medical terms. And we, we grow up 
in many occasions knowing that we are different because it is obvious the way that we've been treated at home or the way that we are being treated uh, by doctors. So we grew up understanding that there is something inherently wrong with us, but actually there is nothing wrong in us. But we are made, we are made, uh, being made feel that way uh, as we grow up. So there is language. There is a language that uh, is coming in, uh, along the way. So they use hermaphrodite. They use pseudo-hermaphrodite in, in Spanish because that's when I first heard any anything in relation to my condition was pseudo-hermaphrodita, which was a term that I kind of like starting to feel like, oh, so I, I am one of those. Okay, and so I am the, such thing. But then that shame passed on to me, like, don't tell or just keep it to you. Don't tell anyone about this or, you know, like don't share this information with anyone. That was also something that I was constantly kind of being told and I was constantly being reminded about that. Uh, and in the term intersex, it was a term that I didn't know about. Uh, until like I was like 18. I was like 18 bloody years old. I, I was already at uni and I never heard such word in my life. So I heard that such word when I was already in Taiwan and I started to embrace that word very later on in life because I kind of like in a sense, I was like, no, I have a medical condition, intersects something else. It's maybe something to do with human rights or something. And, kind of like I was not trying to make myself part of it, okay? Because language is also plays this kind of role. And, and doctors trying to exclude or trying to not to place people within that box of intersex because they want us to be divided. They're trying to name us after a particular syndrome, a particular deficiency or a particular kind of way and kind of pathologizing way in language. So they somehow can exert that biopower on us. Okay, because at the end of the day, it's biopower. So if I name you, I don't know, you know, uh, congenital hydrogen herpoplasia, and that's you. So you, your name is congenital and your last name is adrenal herpoplasia. That's more easy for a doctor because it can somehow control you in that way than actually calling you intersex. Because if I call you intersex and everybody decides that every single of the 45 variations and 370 variations, they all come agree and they have this shared experience of being, uh, you know, with these multiple variations with multiple names, then you somehow kind of like put them together and then it's, it become more powerful. You have more powerful voice against the, that biopower, which is very, can be very toxic. Okay, and which is in that is in a way heteropatriarchal, you know, because that's that power is is inherently heteropatriarchal. So that's what we are fighting. fighting. And I will say that um, um, it's a way of colonizing our bodies. Okay, that language colonizes our bodies. It, it, it's it's actually, I find it really offensive that I have to say I am and such and such syndrome, usually with the last name of a doctor coming from Europe, okay? Because most of the syndromes that we have, Zweier's syndrome, Kauster, uh, uh, sorry, Mayer-Rokitansky-Kauster syndrome, you know, like, I just find that, like, I am a human being and I have to define my whole life experience with the syndrome of a doctor in Europe 
that decided that my body was so weird and wrong that needed to be named after something with the syndrome. No, I think that's what we've been doing with the language with intersex. It's first to recognize that intersex, it's, it's not about just bodies, it's about also a shared experience. And as we all understand that, then it, it, in a way it, it becomes also political because th there is polit political change needed. Okay, it is, there is political change that we need because we have to start respecting the human naturally and, and innate uh, bodily uh, variations that exist in nature. And that's it, you know, we have to remove that biopower that doctors have placed on us because we are such a small community we are such a small community and every time you meet another intersex or even when you meet someone that doesn't identify themselves as intersex, we just realize the tremendous amount of harm and pain that has been inflicted on us. And that's very, very extremely disproportionate. You know, I understand that the medical community can sometimes harm people, but the disproportion of the harm that it causes on us and they, on those feelings of sadness, depression, and, 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 and that feeling of isolation and pain that we have is incredibly big, deep. So that has to stop, you know. Now, previous to this interview, Alien and I had conversed about how gender roles are perceived at an advocacy level. And even more disgustingly, how much women quote identified people or people who read as women are ignored. Now, Aileen is a public figure and to anybody who knows her, they know that she looks like a very girly girl, even though they present themselves as a gender neutral person. However, in the line of work that they do, this actually happens to be a disadvantage and I wanted to know a little bit more how this made our guest feel. And before you go yelling, hey Milo, you just called our guest she, don't worry, they don't mind using the she pronouns. Anyways, let's get back to the interview. As I mentioned before that I feel discriminated against because of my accent constantly, it's one of those things that I feel deeply about, uh, that I feel discriminated against. Then if you put on that, that layer of when I expose myself and I am, I'm they, them, uh, which is something that has nothing to do with being intersex, by the way. It's something that is more in relation with gender and how gender uh, impacts the language, okay? And also <clears throat> when I introduce myself as they, them and a gender or a gender person, because I just, I'm, I'm fed up with genders, if I'm very honest with you, my love. Um, yes, I physically might appear more feminine than masculine, but I was, uh, for the, the first 15 years of my life, I was a boy, okay? So I knew, didn't have a chance to fully masculinize many parts of my body because of my variation, which is uh, partial androgen insensitivity. So my voice was always this kind of like more feminine voice. And this kind of more feminine voice immediately signals that I am actually a woman. Okay. So, and then I have a little bit of longer hair and I might have mannerisms of a woman, but 
I lived my life as a woman for like a good 12 years of my life. So it's kind of like I've been living half the way as a man, half the way as a woman. And I got exhausted because I feel that society creates such uh, expectations on either gender and they are so excessive that every time I act too masculine, I get questioned why I am acting too masculine or every time I dress in such a specific way, or if I dress in a way that doesn't match, or if I'm acting too masculine or bossy, or the other way around. I constantly get questioned why I'm doing, why I'm so too feminine, why I'm too masculine, why A or B or why Z, okay. So yeah, people will not take me seriously and then you add that on top. So I actually came to a point saying that I'm fed up with genders. I just want to be free and to be whatever I want to be. If I want to dress masculine one day or if I want to dress feminine one other way, you know, and I use the idiom pronouns, but I don't take offense if somebody says he or she, because I just definitely don't believe in, in, the, in this uh, uh, oppression that exists with genders because I feel it's oppressive. It doesn't allow people to develop a, a, a free personality, okay? It doesn't enable the person to, to be free, you know, and to develop however they want to be. Okay, so I don't take offense if somebody misgenders or use another type of gender. I don't take offense anymore because I just feel that this society is what is wrong and that this oppressive nature of binaries is wrong. Not people. People were born in that system. Okay, I don't want. It's it's difficult to ask someone to change. You know, it's already that system that is being. You know, it's part of the narrative, it's part of the system, it's the coding of the system. So I understand that it's difficult to change that, but I will not let that society to change me further. I will be independent and free and finally allow myself to be free and to develop my personality in any way I want. Finally, I wanted to ask my guest, what was their language preference when expressing themselves? I curse in Spanish quite a lot when I want to really or when I'm upset, when, I, when, when there is so much in me that I need to put things out. I use Spanish because I find it that's quite expressive when I want to curse, because there, I can put more emotions in, 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 in words. And sometimes I find that English is quite limiting because in English, you cannot really give more expression or emotion to sentence. Like you can, the other, other thing you can do is just to shout louder or change the tone and that's it. But even if you put words in it, you, you are not changing the emotion of what you're saying. In Spanish, you can do that. <clears throat> and also in Russian. So sometimes I also swear in Russian. So, and that comes, comes from my mom, I think. I, I just kind of like trying to copycat my mom a little bit because I remember every time my mom was complaining or saying something or like, she will say, can I curse in your, in your program? <laughs> like, blad or like, like something like Bozo Moy, it's like, oh my God, and things like that. So I kind of sometimes use those because it's kind of like, I don't know, something that I have in my, in my hair, in my heart. And, 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 the, and I'm from Colombia. And one of the curses that we have from Colombia is that fixation that we had for Hueputa. And with that particular intonation in which we make a, a puta, you know, like very, a very pronounced P-U pronunciation, I don't know why. But sometimes when I when I hit my little little toe, you know, when I'm walking, and you know, and I I hit that little you know little toe, 
that's the only word that can help me to bear that pain, you know, it can help me to kind of cope with the pain or so I, I say it or, you know, and oh, I, I think half of the pain is, is gone. <laughs> But you know, like one of these interesting things is with my, my partner, my partner, uh, when I met him, his English was really bad and we didn't have another way to communicate, but just English. So he started to use Hebrew words for things at home or, and, you know, and it became another kind of language because, uh, for instance, when he mentioned the Shoev, the Shatiyah, the um, the shaish the cure so those are parts of the house that when we are together we call it that way so we use those words we don't use an English uh, form of, of of those words so for instance the the cure is the place where we do dishes you know where you wash the dishes and we call it cure the shoev is the vacuum cleaner okay you know, and we keep using those words. And it's, it's like we are making a Creole language among ourselves already, because we are using those words. And I'm sure that if we have kids, they will grow up using those words inter interchangeably in an English kind of language that we use kind of like as a lingua franca at home. And yeah, and yeah, this is kind of like um, how, you know, we kind of incorporate in our languages. He also says cajon, he used the word cajon. He used the word rodilla, call, he uses them. Okay, so we are kind of making a whole mix Creole language already, you know, at home. But we love, you know, our love is in English, <laughs> mainly. Finally, our guest was letting us know that in New Zealand, it's mandatory for people to learn how to introduce yourself in Maori language as Maori language has been classified as a vulnerable language. Here's a small introduction in Maori by Aileen. Yeah, I mean, here is of, it's mandatory to learn Maori at school. So it's already incorporated in the education system and it's incorporated absolutely everywhere. Like everything is in the in both languages. And, and yeah, I mean, it's just part of life. I can't even know. I can. I, I know how to introduce myself in Maori, by the way. So, can you, you want you to hear give it? an example? Yeah. So, kufura te agua ni nati muiska tangata te igui koeliana takui noa te nakoto te nakoto te nakoto katoa. Maori is the language spoken by the natives of New Zealand. Because it has been classified as a vulnerable language by UNESCO, the New Zealand government has pledged to teach and incorporate Maori language in day-to-day -day life. At sporting events, the national anthem is sung in both English and Maori language. It's also common for New Zealanders of all backgrounds to sprinkle Maori words and phrases into their speech. And most importantly, the renewed interest in the Maori language also comes as New Zealand continues to wrestle with its colonial history and representation for Maori culture. Now that's pretty cool. Take some notes, Canada, US, and so many other countries. Until next time. And remember, Ehara Itati, you only live once. This show was produced by me, Milo Falcone. 
a very special thanks to my guest. Music by DJ Young and Luke Rumbo. See you next time. <laughs>